Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and what do you know? It's the end of August already. It's not crazy, but we still have time to jump on those last few weeks of summer. You know, soak in some rays, breathe some fresh air, just slip on those sandals and get outside. So that is precisely what we are doing this week. We're going to play a little soccer. We're going to zoom around on some electric bikes. We're even going to plunge underground and do some serious spelunking as we bring you some of our recent favorite stories in a show we're calling The Great Outdoors. But we'll start today's show by heading out and going back in time, way back in time to something like, I don't know, 220 million years ago or so. In other words, the late Triassic Age. Triassic Age. Yeah. Is that before or after the Jurassic Age? Uh, before. Yeah. And according to the guy we're walking with here? My name is Garrett Peck. I'm the author of The Potomac River, A History and Guide, which just came out. The late Triassic was a marvelous time in our region's history because it led to the formation of a rather distinctive local feature. One you can see in the Cap'n John Bridge, for instance, in some walkways and doorways of the U.S. Capitol building. And of course, the most famous is the Smithsonian Castle, right on the mall. The ancient feature in question is a bright red rock known as Seneca Red Sandstone. Another building building made with Seneca red sandstone. It has been torn down in the 1970s, but it was there for about a century, was the D.C. jail. What became of that stone when the jail was torn down? Some of the stone went into the Smithsonian's collection, should they ever need to repair the Smithsonian castle. So it's like a secret stockpile somewhere? Do you know where it is? Not specifically, but I could probably find out if you gave me about two hours. (laughs) Listeners, we'll get back to you on this one. (laughs) And we will, I promise, on some future show, so... Stay tuned. For now, though, it might be helpful to let you know where we are right now. We're right by the Potomac River in Maryland at Seneca Creek State Park. We're not too far from the Seneca Quarry. That's where all that super durable sandstone came from. To approach the quarry, you head down the CNO Canal towpath right around mile 23. So how far are we from the quarry now? Uh, we are almost in the quarry. Oh. Yeah, it's very, very close. But here's the thing. You'd never know how very close it actually is. See, the quarrying operation closed around 1900. More than a century later, thanks to Mother Nature and Father Time, you can barely see the quarry for the trees. The trees are very, very, very thick, and and the ground is covered in brush. Although back in the day, all of this, this growth, these trees, this brush, not here, right? There wasn't probably hardly a single tree here at, at all. I mean, this was an industrial operation. And what an operation it was. Garrett Peck says the place was clattering with hammers and buzzing with drills as early as the 1770s. Then, when the CNO Canal's Seneca section opened in 1830, things really took off now that workers could float tons of stone to Washington each day. But, as Peck points out, as the turn of the century approached, things began to change. For one thing... The CNO Canal declined. And eventually... There was a major flood, and that, that shut the thing down. That was in 1924. The quarry, of course, ceased operations before that. But in any case, people also had begun moving away from red sandstone and gravitating toward other kinds of stone, like granite. Before an era of big ships and railroads and so on, you kind of dealt with the rocks you had locally. But now we can get granite in our homes. Well, gosh, you can get it from North Carolina, you can get it from New Hampshire, and you don't really care. Hence, again, the Seneca quarries decline. But the overgrown cliffs aren't the only evidence of this downfall. If you veer off the CNO towpath and hike toward the quarry itself... Oh, we'll walk uh, right here, just a little ways. You'll approach a veritable shell of a building. It's like you think you're somewhere in ancient Rome. 
You know, I was just thinking that. It's bright red sandstone, about half the length of a football field, and was once the Seneca Stone Cutting Mill. Though looking at the roofless ruin with its decrepit walls, its hollowed-out windows and doorways, you'd be hard-pressed to identify it as such. Seriously, I would never know this was a mill. Yeah. I mean, it's not protected. It's not particularly well-preserved. And there's also a little bit of graffiti. A little bit of graffiti. Apparently Nick was here. Yeah, Nick was here. As for the record, was someone named Kevin. Their spray-painted scrawls join a host of others on the crumbling mill, which Garrett Peck predicts eventually will crumble away altogether. Unless it's preserved, which means that someone has to be proactive about shoring up the building. We don't know if there's any movement afoot to do that. The state of Maryland um, and I believe the Sino Canal, they've had a plan going back to the 1970s to do something with the quarry, to build some kind of visitor park or something, and they just never had the funds to do it, which is really too bad. I think this would be a great park, and especially after seeing what Stafford County has done with Government Island. Government Island is the Virginia quarry that provided a quiet sandstone for a bunch of famous projects, including the White House and the U.S. Capitol. Stafford County recently transformed the old quarry into an archaeological site and park. It's a great place to go watch birds, and they've got signs all over it. You can walk among all the quarries. It's, it's really, really cool. So A-plus to Stafford County for doing that. Whether Montgomery County will receive similarly high marks remains to be seen. In the meantime, Peck hopes more people will learn about the Seneca Quarry, or at least learn it exists. We've passed a few people here on this path, um, some joggers, some dog walkers, a guy on a bike. Do you think they have any idea about the history of, I mean, what they're walking by, what they're jogging by, what they're biking by? I doubt anyone knows. There's not a sign to explain, hey, this is the place where the Smithsonian Castle was cut. But so much significance of our nation's history, of our capital city history, came about here through this quarry. This quarry that Garrett Peck, for one, views as a regional treasure, a gem, a near-forgotten diamond in the tried and true rough. Garrett Peck is the author of The Potomac River, A History and Guide, newly published by History Press. To see photographs of the Seneca Quarry and Mill, as well as some of the local structures built using that bright red sandstone, visit our website, metroconnection.org. We turn now from quarries to caves and the people who explore our region's subterranean spaces. Environment reporter Sabri Benashore tagged along with some cavers back in February to learn how they manage when caught in a tight space. An hour and a half outside of Washington and 60 feet into the earth, I have been abandoned. Uh, where are you? Keely Owens is a longtime caver, and she's led us through chamber after chamber, through hundreds of feet of rock. No, that's impossible. A person can't fit in that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So Keely has just disappeared into a rabbit hole. It's kind of like um, Twister. Okay. It's a three-dimensional puzzle you got to solve with your body. <laughs> so that's the fun part of it. Then it's my turn. Here come the feet. It's kind of like watching a birth. Here come the feet. We've got feet. We've got knees. There you go. You're in. (laughs) Oh, you're in the water. Not where you want to (laughs) be. 
We've entered this room through an eight-foot tube in the rock. The room is not more than three feet high. For Owens, these tight crawls are exhilarating, and undiscovered quiet spaces are peaceful and nurturing. But for other people, not so much. Yeah, they trigger all sorts of stuff. And I've seen people get really disoriented, feel like they're going to fall over. We could be underground and have everything be fine. You know, everybody's happy, everybody's joking. And people would start to... <laughs> um, we're going to start heading out now soon. And you could tell by the tone of their voice that it was really like that you needed to be saying yes to that question. So of all people who would go into a cave, Amber Lehman is maybe the most unlikely. On the second floor of a downtown Boston office building, the walls are all glass and light pours in. Thanks for coming out. I'm Amber. Come on, let's head back this morning. We'll chat. Lehman is a recovering claustrophobe. I could not go in elevators above the second floor. Um, If the elevator was packed with four or five people, I would wait and take the stairs. I, I would go into complete panic mode. Heart racing, hyperventilation, the whole gamut. Until one day, a friend of her suggested she do something about it. She said, you know, you really should try caving. And she said, you know, it might help with your claustrophobia. And I'm like, you're crazy. (laughs) I'm not going in a cave. Lehman passed on caving trip after caving trip after caving trip until finally something possessed her to just give it a try. I was anticipating completely freaking out and having a panic attack, which I'd had before, A panic attack feels very similar to a heart attack. You think you're dying. When I got in there, my first thought was, what am I going to do if I get stuck? What if I break my leg? What if I break my finger? What if I break a nail? I mean, you know, I mean, anything is running through your head at that time. But with reassurance from her friends, something crazy happened. We're into the cave, and I'm doing surprisingly well. (laughs) Kind of shocked myself. And I found that I actually started... Loving it. Not only can Lehman now deal with crowds, elevators, and tight spaces, she helps run a caving club and leads expeditions just about every weekend. But this isn't actually all that strange. The main treatment for phobias is something called exposure therapy. Joseph Bienvenu is an associate professor of psychiatry at Johns Hopkins Medical School. It involves getting into a situation that you would typically avoid letting your anxiety be there until it decreases substantially. He says if people stick with it, start small, anxiety levels will fall. For some people, if they, if they spend too much time away from the, the situation, their fear builds up again. Back in the cave, Keely Owen says the lessons learned 60 feet underground also help her deal with life's problems. When I'm out in my regular life, which is actually a lot harder to manage than caving, and I find myself in a situation that just, it feels like, You know, it's too small, it's too hard, it's too difficult of a a crawl for me to get through. I think, okay, it's okay. Calm down, take your time, take a breath. Sounds like, uh, you know, a lot of the important things in life can be found in the cave. That is my whole thesis right there, (laughs) Sabri. Yeah. I'm Sabri Benishore. For photos of caving and links to local caving clubs, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Time for a break, but when we get back, D.C.'s number of Zooming commuters is on the rise. 
when we first opened in 2010, we sold, between April and December, we sold about 12 units of electric bikes. In 2011, we sold approximately 34 units of electric bikes. That and more coming your way on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. This week, we're getting out of the office and heading into the great outdoors with some of our favorite outdoorsy stories from the past few months. Later in the show, we're going to zoom around town on electric bikes, and we'll play a bit of soccer or football with players from all over the world. But first, let's head to Adams Morgan for a story about basketball. The players we're about to meet are teens and 20-somethings who've come to see the basketball court as a kind of haven from the dangers of street life. And as Jessica Gould tells us, these individuals have become a kind of family, sharing both success and devastating loss. Ania Khan Udofia says the sound of a basketball bouncing is like his heart beating faster and faster as he makes his way to the court. All of a sudden you start walking faster, your heart starts beating and you're thinking, okay, what team do I play with tonight? I want to win games. For years, a rectangle of cracked concrete at Walter Pierce Park has been the unofficial hub of the neighborhood. Udofia says it's a place where divisions from race and class to crew melt away in the heat of the game. It's not just a basketball court, like it's, it's the community center. And Pierce Park regular Gerard Allen says the court is his home away from home. Like I could talk about family issues. I could talk about females. I could talk about money. If it was a point where I couldn't go home, it's guaranteed it's at least two or three people down there. I know I can go over their house. Neighborhood activist Brian Weaver began playing pickup games at Pierce Park more than a decade ago. He came for the basketball, but he stayed because of the friendships he formed, especially with kids who were struggling to stay out of trouble. I spent some time in Central America, and I really sort of viewed the life that a lot of kids were living here in D.C. were very similar to the lives that a lot of young folks in, in Guatemala were living in. Violence had touched every household. People were sort of looking for games to be an escape from day-to-day lives. Weaver decided to bring a group of kids from the neighborhood to Guatemala and host a basketball camp for the locals. Clayton Mitchell was on that first trip. And you see how they struggle. It makes you look back at D.C. It's like, damn, we've taken a lot of things for granted. Since then, Weaver has brought about 150 kids to Guatemala as part of the nonprofit he started called Hoop Sagrado. And over the years, the annual trips have strengthened the camaraderie on the court, transforming a diverse group of pickup basketball players into a family. I look around the table and I think I see the pallbearers at my funeral. I mean, this is that kind of friendship that I think that we, we've sort of have established. Gerard Allen says he isn't sure where he'd be without the Hoops community. It's a good chance I could have been locked up. It's a greater chance I could have even 
more tragic than that. But not all the Pierce Park players have been so lucky. Drugs, violence, they call it the fast life, and they say it's claimed several of their friends and relatives. In 2008, Clayton Mitchell lost his brother Darrell in a burst of gunfire. He just had one of them type of personalities, like even if he was having a bad day, he could change your whole day with just a few words. He was just that type of person. Then in 2010, Hoops alum Jamal Coates was gunned down on U Street. Aniakan Udofia painted a mural at the park as a tribute to Coates and the others. The first panel has a kid blindfolded with an hourglass, but he's wearing a graduation hat, and the hourglass is broken. He says the mural represents the potential of the players and the things that stand in their way. They have high aspirations, and you see people who are trying to help push that high aspirations, but then there's something in between that, which is originally the environment they grew up in. Brian Weaver says that combination of hope and struggle has deep roots in the neighborhood. That court is built on a cemetery, and it's a cemetery of freed slaves and of, and of white abolitionists. And, and that, that, to me, is always sort of the sacred ground in the community. But Sam Levy, who grew up playing basketball at Pierce Park, says the core group of players is getting older now, and jobs and families can make it difficult to get together the way they used to. Meanwhile, he says gentrification is changing the community and the courts. People should know. People that use the park now and... People that are moving into the neighborhood, they, they just can't really understand how important playing basketball at that park was for everyone that used to play basketball there. Because whether or not this course saved you or not, it was there for you. Udofia puts it this way. To this group, basketball is not just a game, it's life. And for them, the bounce of a basketball will always be the beating heart of the neighborhood. I'm Jessica Gould. You can find more information about Hoops Sagrado and Walter Pierce Park on our website, metroconnection.org. Now, when it comes to sports, soccer may be the most international one there is. And though America tends to lag a bit behind in enthusiasm for the sport, that doesn't dampen the spirits of people who come here from abroad. Every week, at an undisclosed location in northwest D.C., soccer players from all over the world gather for some early morning play. They call it Sunday soccer. And as Emily Friedman tells us, it isn't just a pickup game. It's a way of life. It's 8.30 a.m. Sunday morning, and I'm standing on the sidelines of the Sunday soccer game. It appears the yellow team is winning, but there's no scoreboard, so it's kind of hard to tell. Uh, we make fun of each other keeping score, but it's not really... Massimo Gili is lacing up his cleats, getting ready to join in the game. As he waits, he proudly tells me exactly how this community began. And our kids were playing soccer, and uh, we saw a ball. We just kicked the ball, too, and they said, why don't we start a game? Back then, which was about 15 years ago, there were a handful of men who played. Now you have to get here on time. Otherwise, you sit on the sidelines until another player gets tired. Which, luckily for Gili, is about to happen. Massimo Gili is in. Olafar Goodmanson, out. I'm originally from Iceland, and I've been coming religiously to this game for about six, seven years. Sunday morning's tricky, he says, because there's always pressure to stay home, help out with the kids, or go to church. But seven years in... His family knows exactly what his excuse will be. Uh, sorry, this is the temple of the round ball. This religion trumps all other religions. 
It's a religion, he says, that unites people from all over the world. I'm from New Delhi. Lebanon. I'm from Peru. Cleveland, Ohio. Palestine. Moscow, Russia. Cameroon. From Seville. From Brazil. Trinidad and Tobago. Newcastle, England. Daniel Kaufman from Chile. Daniel Kaufman from Chile is one of the oldest players on the team. He's 60, and to keep a competitive advantage, he and other Spanish speakers have been known to switch over to their native language when the game gets really heated. We take it relatively seriously, but it's not a competitive World Cup. During the week, Kaufman is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. And though one of his specialties at Brookings is anti-corruption, other players tell me Kaufman is well-known for his attempts to lure better players to his side. It's not even... Be on my team. Carlos, switch. (laughs) Jaime Vilches, who's from Peru and works for the State Department, says there's also a comfort factor in playing with this big mix of people. Everybody speaks English with different accents. When you play with only Americans, it's like they always say to you, what do you say? They pretend that they don't understand when you talk. Here, Vilches points out, and you've probably noticed, nearly everyone has an accent. And then there's the issue of gender. Sarah Hughes, the only female player on the field today, says, actually, never really comes up. More unusual being American born and raised. I hear more about that probably than being a woman on the team. (laughs) Those who are born and raised in the U.S., like Timothy Schwartz from Manhattan, say playing with such an international crowd has toughened them up a bit. Our one friend who wasn't here today, he's Russian, big, strong Russian guy. And uh, he went up for a header, yeah, and he broke his nose in the game. And he sort of sat on the ground, and he stood up, blood pouring out, and he <laughs> set his nose and kept playing. <laughs> After the game, Schwartz leads the group to a nearby Starbucks. The players were competitive on the field, but the post-game gathering feels more like a family reunion. Well, if you asked us seriously about playing this game on Sundays and playing with all these guys, we'd tell you that these are, these are our best friends. These are the guys that, this is the day we look forward to the whole week. We never know what's going to happen. Whether there's going to be a great game, bad game, whether we're going to have a love fest afterwards or whether we have to have a pass the peace pipe around. But we know one thing that's going to happen, that we will have fun. And fun, Daniel Kaufman says, is what soccer's all about. I'm Emily Friedman. Emily's story was informed by WAMU's Public Insight Network. It's a way for people to share ideas with us and for us to reach out for input on upcoming stories. You can find more information by going to metroconnection.org slash pin. Give me freedom, give me fire, give me reason, take me higher, be the champion, take the field now, unify us, make us feel proud. So let's talk commuting. Now, when it comes to commuting, there aren't many ways to get around that we'd consider all that rare or unusual, right? There's the bus, the train, your car, your own two legs. Well, back in February, transportation reporter Martin DeCaro tested out another method in our weekly transportation segment from A to B. And as he did, he found this particular method, while still rare, is starting to take off. Joe Reyes used to work in a noisy world of horsepower and engine exhaust. 
He was a Ferrari race car mechanic in his younger days. It was fun. It was a good experience. But these days, instead of the roar of a 12-cylinder engine that would get about five miles per gallon, his ears are filled with this. That's an electric motor on a bicycle. It's like a drill. <laughs> we call it an electric assist bicycle. You get 25% of your assist from the electric motor. 75% of it comes from you. So it's kind of, you know, an electric human hybrid, if you will. Welcome to the Green Commuter. The bike shop Reyes has owned with his wife for the past two years. The place where he hopes to sell a lot more electric bicycles. Right now, he's lucky to sell one per week. When we first opened in 2010, we sold, between April and December, we sold about 12 units of electric bikes. In 2011, we sold approximately 34 units of electric bikes. Reyes only took an interest in electric bikes after a fight with his wife, who was getting tired, literally, of their long treks on regular bicycles. She's ready to kill me. So I did some research and... That's when I started learning about these electric bikes, so I bought her one of these bikes. So from, this is really what started everything here. An electric bike looks like your regular sturdy road bike, except for the lithium-ion battery pack on the rear frame. Some new models have a range of 20 miles or more and can easily reach the top speed allowed under federal law, 20 miles per hour. As the technology has improved, Reyes says electric bikes have become more practical. They're lighter, their batteries last longer, and they're a lot of fun. I know, because I took one for a test ride. So, I'm at the bottom of a hill on an electric bike. I need a little throttle. Whoa. Up I go. You can hear that sound. That's the engine, or the battery. No engine. Electric bikes can also be fitted with cargo containers. I plopped into a big black bucket Reyes uses to go grocery shopping. He pedaled, I sat in the back. Destination, the Tacoma Metro Station, one mile from his store. How fast are we going? Probably 18 miles an hour. Man, 18 miles an hour. It took us about five minutes to get there. It probably would have taken us about 30 minutes to reach the corner of 13th and Pennsylvania. <laughs> where I met Charlie Garlow, the president of the Electric Vehicle Association of Greater Washington, near his office at the Environmental Protection Agency. He's an attorney who works on compliance with the Clean Air Act and a big supporter of green commuting. He co-owns the bike shop with Reyes. Some people say, well, Charlie, I don't know about bicycling. You could get so hot and sweaty and all that. And I said, well, try an electric bicycle, especially for folks who are a little older like I am. I'm 62 years old. If you're having a hard time getting up that hill without throwing out that old knee injury you had from soccer, then just pull the trigger on your electric and zing, up the hill you go. As you can tell, electric bicycling has plenty of benefits. No pollution, the exercise is good for your health, and it's a cheap ride too, about three cents a mile based on kilowatt hours. But the bikes themselves aren't cheap. A new model can cost you close to $3,000. You can get a good one for $1,500. Garlo expects the prices to eventually come down if the bikes grow in popularity. Variety is the spice of life. And if you see somebody cool going down the highway with a bicycle like that guy right there who just dinged at us, it's one of my pals, uh, you say to yourself, yeah, I can do that. Richard Cowden used to drive 38 miles one way to work in the 1990s, but now the 61-year-old editor at a publishing company rides his electric bike 24 miles round trip from Tacoma Park to Crystal City. 
He foresees more people living closer to their offices, making bicycling more appealing. The housing collapse forced people to start looking again at their uh, the inner city, the urban infrastructure, the uh, central business district areas, that where there was plenty of good housing stock that was largely either abandoned or underutilized. 68% of all drivers commute between 1 and 15 miles one way, according to the U.S. Department of Transportation. Only 16% drive at least 26 miles one way to work. So maybe this sound doesn't have to be so rare after all. I'm Martin DeCaro. To see for yourself what these electric bikes look like, head to our website, metroconnection.org. And now, our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit Park Fairfax in Virginia and D.C.'s southwest waterfront. My name is Dan King, and I live in the southwest waterfront. And that neighborhood extends from the historic fish market on the west side and M Street all the way to South Capitol Street on the east side. On the north side, it's pretty much the southeast-southwest highway. And then on the south side is the Washington Channel of the Potomac River. It has a lot of history. This was one of the places where, especially after the Civil War, many African Americans kind of made their homes here. That pretty much lasted until the 1930s, 1940s. There used to be wharfs down here and people who worked at the Navy Yard. The 1950s and 1960s was the start of the Urban Renewal Project. And they basically just wiped out almost everything down here except for the military base and a few churches. So it's an area that really underwent a lot of change, and I don't think it quite lived up to its promise. At the same time, they were also building the Southeast-Southwest Highway that sort of cut off this neighborhood, and only a few streets could get north of that highway. So this sort of became an island unto itself. The development for the past five years has really been anchored on, I think, making up for some of the mistakes that the urban redevelopment initiated. I think there were very grandiose plans, but it never really felt like a neighborhood again. So the new development really has been looking at reclaiming that sense of community. My name is Meg Buhabib, and I'm from Park Fairfax here in Alexandria, Virginia. It's right across 395 from Sherlington, so everyone, a lot of people know where Sherlington is, and there's actually a walk bridge over to Sherlington, so you can get there um, in about five minutes, which is also one of the nice things about living here. Park Fairfax is really charming. It has a lot of the old-school brick original foundation. It's from the 40s. It was actually created for Pentagon workers, and it has two presidents have lived here, Nixon and Ford. So um, it's surprisingly kept a, pretty much as it was. It's very unique in its nature and the enchanting kind of forest paths, you know, and it's kind of like a secret garden. You know, you come up upon it and it's um, kind of out of place, but they've kept a lot of the natural atmosphere. We're all fighting for land and, you know, everywhere nearby new high-rises are cropping up and this particular condo community provides something pretty unique and different. 
We heard from Meg Buhabib in Park Fairfax and Dan King on the Southwest Waterfront. If you think your neighborhood should be part of Door to Door, just send an email to metro at wamu.org. Or visit us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash metroconnection.org. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. After the break, we hit the beach for some phenomenal yet fleeting sculptures. We had about 15 kids out here digging. Took uh, about three hours to dig and took me probably 15 hours altogether to do the sculpting, you know, the whole day. That and more in a minute on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're exploring the great outdoors and getting out and about with some of our favorite Metro Connection stories from the past few months. We've shot some hoops, hopped on electric bikes, we've even gone spelunking. But in this next story, we'll explore an outdoor landmark, many outdoor landmarks actually, that you've probably never noticed. Just to uh, set things up here, if you've ever looked at a map of D.C., you've probably noticed that the boundaries of our nation's capital form a diamond. These days, that diamond is technically missing a corner, the piece of land that Congress handed back to Virginia in the 1840s. But that diamond was whole back in 1791 when it was created by a surveying team led by Major Andrew Ellicott. Along that diamond's borders, Major Ellicott's team placed 40 stones, all made of sandstone from the Aquia Creek Quarry. That's the same place we got stones for the U.S. Capitol and the White House. Anyway, the boundary stones, as we now know them, are the oldest monuments in D.C. and the first ever purchased by the federal government. Here's the thing, though. After more than 200 years, the boundary stones and the iron fences put up in the 1900s to help protect the stones, well, they've all seen better days, which is why... Since 2010, can I get a little of the sound? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, there you go. A group of volunteers has visited the stones every May and October to do preservation work. In this case, whatever keep, stays on can be painted over. Yeah, just keep uh, just keep scraping, scraping off the fences, crumbling paint so it can be replaced with a rich hunter green shade. Um, I'm going to get more workers over here though, because Southwest Number One and Southwest Number Two are just about done now. So we'll get some of those volunteers and move them around. We're in northern Virginia at the edge of a yard off King Street at the stone site known as Southwest Number 4. And I want to see where I am on 5 and 6. Our volunteer wrangler here is Stephen Powers. Powers grew up in the D.C. area, and a handful of years ago, he decided to take his children to visit all 40 stones. As I started taking them to the stones, I got what I call stones fever. And I took over 3,500 photos of the stones and did condition studies of them. Since then, he's become acting co-chair of what has got to be my favorite acronym of all time. NACABOSCO. Which stands for? The Nation's Capital Boundary Stones Committee. It's made up of close to 30 different groups, local governments, historical societies. Not to mention organizations like the American Society of Civil Engineers National Capital Section and the Daughters of the American Revolution, who actually first put up those Nakabasco seeks to do two things. One, raise public awareness. And two, unite the boundary stones under one 
owner. The federal government. Because currently, the stones on the Maryland-D.C. border fall under the auspices of DDOT. The District Department of Transportation. Which says it doesn't have funding for restoration or preservation. And in Virginia... When the government retroceded the lands, also retroceded the stones. So the Virginia stones are all owned by that individual land owner. Many of them are in private yards. One of them is in a church parking lot. And the owner of that land actually owns those stones. So right now, Nakabosco is working on an application to submit the stones for National Historic Landmark status. That would create federal funding and an ownership, and these stones would no longer be orphaned and forgotten and would lead to them surviving for future generations to enjoy. Because in a way, it's kind of shocking this generation has been able to enjoy the stones, or the ones that remain, I guess I should say. See, originally there were four cornerstones and then nine stones on each 10-mile leg. Thus there's 40 sites and stones. But four of those sites no longer have their original stones. Instead, one is a plaque. Two feature replicas. And the final stone is actually in storage, and we're hoping to get that one back into the ground. So 37 of the original stones actually still exist. And boy, have those stones been through a lot. Stephen Powers says some were used for target practice during the Civil War. A Southwest number 4 was repeatedly struck by farm plows, and a couple miles north... All right, so on to another stone. Yep, now this stone you can actually see engraving on. On Jefferson Street, just south of Columbia Pike. And here is number 6 right here. We'll go down and we'll make a U-turn and come back around. Southwest number 6 was hit by a car. We're actually, we're in the median right now. We're right in the middle of the median. This stone is in the median. That's why it was hit by a car back in 1966 and why it's broken in half. We'd like to see this median actually widened, maybe put some more protective bollards or something around it so that another accident wouldn't happen in the future. That would, of course, require some major engineering. So Powers says it's a good thing the American Society of Civil Engineers National Capital Section is on board. The organization hopes to designate the Boundary Stones an ASCE Historic Civil Engineering Landmark. It also hopes to design and raise funds for a public park at the East Cornerstone. The West Cornerstone, south of West Street in Falls Church, already has a park named for Major Andrew Ellicott. But otherwise, Stephen Powers says, the Boundary Stones are largely forgotten. People either pass right by without noticing, or if they do notice... Local residents will come up to us and say, is that a gravestone? What is that? When we tell them what it is, they get very excited by it. And the hope, he says, is that the federal government will get excited too. And hey, maybe even come down with a case of Stone's fever itself. like to visit all 40 Boundary Stone sites or at least see a map of where they lie, visit our website, metroconnection.org. We transition from stones to sand as we hit the beach for our On the Coast segment. 
in which coastal reporter Brian Russo brings us the latest from the eastern shore of Maryland and coastal Delaware. Now, Brian does a lot of his reporting in Ocean City, Maryland. And if you've ever spent time there, you've probably seen these massive sculptures rising up out of the sand right near the boardwalk at 2nd Street. These sculptures, often biblical in nature, are the work of a man named Randy Hoffman, who's been making sand sculptures in Ocean City for more than 30 years. Brian chatted with Hoffman recently about what it's like to spend so much time on art that's destined to disappear. When you start, you just have a mound of sand. So going from the mound of sand to these exquisite and intricate scenes, you know, we've got, we're looking at uh, probably a 15-foot Lord's Supper scene. Um, talk about creating that. How long did it take? What's the first steps? How do you do it? These are mega sculptures now. I've worked up to the big efforts, the biggest sculptures I'll do for the summer. But when we come out in the spring, they're just little piles. They're like one-third the size of this Last Supper pile. And then after we make a couple of them, and we, uh, we, they get decayed or vandalized. And then, for example, this Last Supper here, we had to wreck two perfectly good sand sculptures. And we, and we lumped them two together to make this triple-sized sculpture this last supper and we had about 15 kids out here digging took uh, about three hours to dig and took me probably 15 hours altogether to do this sculpting you know the whole day and you you talked a little bit about the paste and, and using a little you know you, you showed me the knife it's like a little plastic carry out knife, knife. Yes. it's it's from the mug and mallet across the boardwalk in the plume plaza you, you to pick the crab meat but it's a little plastic knife but it, it's strongly made i can remember some of the early years I'd be looking for little sticks on the beach because I'd want to do, you know, intricate details on the eyes and all. And my hands were pretty good, but uh, couldn't really cut. And then this knife, I don't know, I forget when I first started, but it's been my main tool in my whole life. This, yeah. this little plastic knife, it's so simple, but it, it's light and, uh, um, oh, it's great to do lettering with. Let's walk towards the, the sculptures for a minute. Talk about how long that takes to, to kind of hone the craft to be able to have it this in- intricate. I remember when I thought, well, maybe I'll do sand sculpture. I went over to Assateague, uh, so all alone in private, so nobody could see how good or bad it would be. And I did a Jesus laying on the cross just flat on the ground, and, and it was okay. But my early sand sculptures, they were like the Michelin tire people, you know, just, mm-hmm. just blob kind of things. And So it's taken a lot of devotion to, to, to keep honing the craft. You know, certainly weather plays into the existence of these sculptures. I'm sure anytime you watch, uh, you know, the weather and you see a big storm coming, how much does a regular rainstorm or a windstorm damage these uh, amazing pieces of art? Oh my, you know, last couple of weeks we've had a lot of rain. Oh, and some, some, just some harsh storms have rolled through. And uh, although now we spray it with the finished sculpture with a little bit of water down Elmer's glue and it puts a crust on it and that protects it. And so they can last for a month or so. But um, if it rains lightly, the rain will go in and wash off. But if it's a heavy rain and it keeps raining hour after hour, it'll turn the, uh, the Elmer's glue back into just nature, you know, and it'll dissolve. And, and the, the, the sculpture will get heavy and blob down and just, just fall down. Do these ever get vandalized? And, and, you know, I guess talk about that, the way that the community interacts with these sculptures. Are they respected enough to not be damaged? Most people pretty much enjoy it for one reason or the other. It's kind of a combination of two. Wow, look, using natural materials on the beach, very appropriate, a beach presentation of the Bible. So that's a cool thing. So most people like it. But then 
say like early in the morning somebody's half drunk and they're not really mentally there and so they may may jump on it or, or you know in every crowd there's some some wise guy who just wants to be cute and and um do something daring and then he'll run up to it so i don't know the reasons why but it, it, it does get vandalized once in a while do you ever wake up in the morning and say man i gotta go do the sand sculpting again today no, actually, I, I do so few now. In the early years, before the Elmer's Clue, we'd do about 100 a summer. We'd have to come out every night. I was a Sabbath abuser. But uh, now now I do about 15 of them or so, uh, besides the commercial contracts I do of sand sculpture. So I kind of look forward to it because it, it's more fun than when I'm just by myself down the studio just painting. Are you looking to teach the next person that will keep this going you know when you can't do this anymore when you choose not to do it anymore i'd like to see it go on i mean it, it seemed uh, it'd be a failure if it just dropped out when i drop out i'm i'm 60 right now you yeah. know i feel like i got to maybe up to a decade you know they say is this your church well way it's a church but more I'm, a, I'm an evangelist which means the bringer of the good news a guy who just comes in said i got good news you know it's like a, a gossip it's like paul revere guy riding on the horse you know runs into town the british are coming yeah. and, and i'm in here ocean sea says uh, the kingdom of god is coming it's good news and he accepts you you're but welcome. instead of holding the Bible, you're, you're holding a little plastic knife and oh, creating doesn't. sand sculptures. I'm a visual communicator. I think God's equipped me with these skills to do this job in this way. That was sand sculptor Randy Hoffman speaking with WAMU's Brian Russo. To check out some of Hoffman's work, head to our website, metroconnection.org. we wrap up today's Great Outdoors show, we revisit one of our favorite DC Gigs segments from the past few months. DC Gigs is our series exploring the distinctively DC jobs held by folks in the area. And this guy we're about to meet spends most of his time gigging, yes, in the Great Outdoors. Jack Sustick is the curator of the National Arboretum's Bonsai Museum. And it's no small job considering these little trees can live hundreds of years. Producer Mark Adams spent a soggy afternoon with Sustick back in April and learned why caring for bonsais is more than a commitment. It's a calling. My name is Jack Sustick, and I'm curator of the National Bonsai in Penjing Museum. Being curator means that you're responsible for the entire collection, for the entire museum at the National Arboretum. And that entails the oldest tree, which is almost 400 years old, has been a bonsai for almost 400 years, to making sure that the benches are clean and that the water basins are clean. And it's a wide range of responsibility from, from heavy responsibility to light responsibility. So fortunately, the bonsai grow. That's job security for me, but uh, we also have to trim them. So we have to maintain the shape. When we get rain like this, we, we get a break. And it's not just a physical break, but it's a mental break, too, because we're always checking the trees for water because they all dry out at different times. So it's something that's always on your mind. So this is our, the oldest tree in the collection, and it was uh, started as a bonsai in 1625. 
and we call this the Yamaki pine because it was the Yamaki family that donated it and it was in that family for six generations before it came here in 1976. It's a very special tree. Well, they're all special, but this one is very special for us. You know, before I got into bonsai, I was not into plants. I didn't really care about plants. I was actually I was in the Army, stationed in Korea. And I just happened across a store where they were selling bonsai. And it was they were very nice trees. And uh, it, they just captivated me and couldn't stop thinking about them. And uh, uh, came back to the States, and the first thing I did was I joined a club, and it just started from there. I, I don't see myself ever not doing bonsai. It's a lifetime commitment if you're, if you're serious about it. These trees are, are, I often say that they're like children. They're like your children, our children. You know, when you have a, a child that, is, that does well or does a, has a play at school and they're, you know, on stage and uh, you're very proud. And the, these trees are the same way. When they're looking good and I have them in the, in the exhibit, um, I'm very proud. Uh, when they're not doing well, I worry about them. When they're kind of sick. and So they're very much like children. There will always be a connection whether I'm here or not. There will always be a connection for me with these trees. That was Jack Sustick of the National Arboretum speaking with producer Mark Adams. You can see photos of some of the oldest and best-known bonsai trees in the National Arboretum's collection on our website, metroconnection.org. And if you have a distinctively D.C. gig you think we should feature on the show, please let us know. Our email address is metro at wamu.org. Everybody's working for the Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Sabri Benashore, Jessica Gould, Emily Friedman, Brian Russo, and Martin DeCaro, along with producer Mark Adams. Our acting news director is Memo Lyons. Our managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Rafaela Benin. Jonna McCone, Lauren Landau, and Rafaela Benin produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can see all the music we use on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story, and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on metroconnection.org, you can find our Twitter and Facebook links. You can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. To listen to our most recent episodes, click the podcast link or just find us on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week when we unite past and present with a show we're calling Then and Now. We'll dip into the Metro Connection archives and check out a former nuclear bunker that now houses the most audio and video recordings in the world. And we'll tickle the ivories with a 100-year-old piano prodigy, plus the evolution of video games. The transition era of games is really describing the move from two-dimensional games to three-dimensional games. So think about 
if you were somebody who only ever painted in oils on canvas, and all of a sudden you said, great, now you need to move to sculpting marble. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.